Hey everyone, welcome to the State of Demand Gen podcast where we're going to mash together all the different content types, events, interviews, Demand Gen Live, when I'm a guest on a podcast, LinkedIn content, all here in audio format. If you haven't already, I would highly encourage you to sign up for the Demand Gen Live sessions that I'm putting together with Gatano Donardi at 7.30 p.m., 4.30 Pacific on Tuesday evenings. Tons of great content in there, lots of great insights, live Q&A, building a little community inside there. I'd highly encourage you to check it out. And now to this episode. So, Gatano, I, uh, I've been observing you for a while, and then I was down in Miami, and we caught up um, and filmed this, like, awesome video. Like, uh, when you're talking demand gem with someone that really understands it, like, wow. So anyone that hasn't seen that video yet would super encourage you to go and check it out. Um, and then, yeah, Gitana, why don't you, uh, for the people that don't know, you give a little background. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Chris. Uh, so like Chris said, uh, I think we might have known each other for now about maybe six months, something like that. Uh, we met through the, <laughs> through the wild and wacky world of LinkedIn, um, as I'm sure most people here on the webinar from LinkedIn, they found out about this, but um, I've been uh, doing marketing professionally now uh, for about eight years. Uh, I've been at agencies, uh, startup companies, um, SaaS. I have a lot of SaaS experience. And currently I lead a demand generation team of eight marketers at a company called Nextiva. We're a cloud communications company. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. I think the, I think, you know, for me personally, my growth has, has evolved beyond just single function in marketing, which me, I started in, in, in SEO and I've, you know, to be great at demand gen, you actually have to be much, much broader in your skill set and what you're able to bring to the table than just one function. And I think we're going to unpack a lot of that today. But, uh, if I was going to suggest somebody that wants to be in demand generation, um, SEO is a great starting point because you have content, you have audience understanding, you have user experience, there's technical aspects to it, there's data behind it, you have to understand numerics, analytics, you have to know um, which way that the website funnel works, right? You have to know where the conversion points are, how to attract uh, and convert. So um, in a nutshell, that's kind of how it you know, all led me to where I'm at today. And uh, Chris, it's, it's been a pleasure knowing you over these last six months and doing the video together and now uh, doing this series. So this is fun. Yeah, man. Looking forward to it. Um, so, hey, everyone, for those that don't don't know me, my name is Chris Walker. I'm actually the opposite of Gatano from an experience standpoint. So I actually started my career in engineering, uh, coding microprocessors and stuff like that. And then I moved to product management, owning full P&L of a product line. And then finally moved to downstream uh, marketing, communications, demand gen brand. Um, and I think that foundation is really interesting because when I look at, when I came in and looked at marketing, I was looking at it much different than a lot of my, my peers did. Um, I was looking at it more like from a PL standpoint, um, and how do we drive revenue, not leads. And so through that experience, um, I created, uh, an approach that I think is, is quite unique in how to, how to do demand gen. Um, and now we, uh, I started a company about uh, 12 months ago called Refine Labs and we work with about uh, 10, 12, 13 now, um, technology and engineering SaaS companies that, um, that sell relatively expensive products and help them go to market and do demand gen. So, uh, so let's get started. 
um, the first thing that we wanted to dive into today. So there was a, a post that I made on Sunday uh, that got a lot of traction. So I wanted to unpack it a little bit, mo bit, uh, bit more with you and get some feedback. So the idea was the difference between demand gen and lead gen. And so I was hoping that you could help uh, help break that down a little bit. We can go back and forth and kind of unpack that for everyone. Yeah. So so um, a lot of people get it mixed up. They they hear demand gen and they're like, oh, isn't that just lead gen? Well, the way I think about lead gen is the the transactional, um, you know, function of of attracting and converting without any brand influence whatsoever. Right. So if I'm one of these paper lead vendors, uh, which there are so many of them out there, if you're in demand gen, uh, you know who these people are. They're knocking at your door nonstop. Hey, can you evaluate us as a vendor? Hey, we can get you, you know, bant leads. Hey, we can do this. We can do that. Right. Um, the, the reality is that um, a lot of those lead vendors are, you know, using tactics like, content syndication. Um, they're doing a lot of cold telemarketing, uh, cold calling, cold emailing, right. Um, scraping lists and shit like that. So they're, they're, they're doing those sorts of things that are just purely oriented around how do I get a contact to agree to, to speak with a sales rep. And there's no sort of, uh, element of brand or, or one would even say trust around that. So um, you could even, you could even argue that Google ads and PPC is a form of lead gen, but there's a branding element to that, right? They only click on the brands that they really know. So you could be spending on expensive keywords and bidding all you want. But, um, you know, if that brand is not as known and you're going up against like Zendesk, Freshworks, right? Who do you think they're going to click on? So, um, that's kind of where I'll kick this thing off and maybe Chris, I'll pass it over to you for some additional thoughts. Uh, but that's how I'd like yeah. to maybe kick it off. Yeah, let's do it. So I think one place where I want to focus on the difference that I didn't get across in the post because there's 1300 character limit is I think the core difference is your intent as a, as a marketer. And so is your intent to try and capture someone's contact information so you can pass them to a sales rep or is your intent to try and educate them on the reasons why your product or your company or your service is a, is a good choice for them. And you have to understand and meet them where they are in their journey, which is an interesting piece. Um, I think that lead gen is like market, lead gen in the, in the way that we just defined it is an easy way out for marketers. They'll do an ebook download and they'll pass it off to sales. Um, I think demand gen is the hard part and the way that I define demand gen is being able to market so well that someone comes and comes to you to talk to sales. They fill out a demo request, they call your sales line, they fill out a web chat to book a demo, any of those conversions, which makes you very disciplined as a marketer to I need to educate someone all the way through and do marketing so well that they're ready to buy. And when you do those things, your win rates go way up, your sales cycles get 50 to 65% shorter, um, you're, you're marketing way more efficiently you don't need so many sales reps that are losing deals. Your sales reps are happy. You, bet you have better alignment over time. Um, so that's kind of the way that I've been thinking about a lot of marketing activities lately is on the mindset. Like, what are you trying to accomplish? And people that are focused on metrics like MQLs end up doing the wrong things in order to achieve that metric. 
Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, as you were going off there, my brain was like fire, fire, trigger, trigger, trigger. Like <laughs> the, the electrical, the electrical neurons and shit are just firing off the charts. Um, and I think you, I think you nailed it. Um, you know, the way I come to think of it now is, are you educating? And like you said, they like, it's really gap selling for marketing. That's if I could like come up with demand gen and a phrase it's gap marketing like if you know keenan's book gap selling uh it's the same process but in marketing essentially like you said chris when they come to that website uh they should be ready to open that wallet and buy right they should be familiar enough with your brand uh they're not going to buy on the first touch point right so um that's another thing with lead gen a lot of it can be cold and interruptive um the classic example is like you said a linkedin ad to a Gartner white paper report. And, uh, you know, what is that? Right. <laughs> yeah. They're, they, they weren't looking for that report. They were looking for, you know, the latest interesting thread on demand gen versus lead gen. They, they weren't necessarily looking on, you know, the magic quadrant report, blah, blah, blah. So, um, I, I think, you know, nothing much more to add to that. I think you nailed it. Yeah. Let's break down one more thing in the, in the eBooks that I think is super important. I see it a lot right now. Um, and just want to help people on that. And then I want to focus on your post. So on the, on the ebook side, for those that aren't familiar, it's a very common tactic in lead gen, I would actually consider it, where you build a PDF and then you promote it on whether social channels or SEO rankings or whatever, in order for someone to fill out the form to get the ebook. And then typically what happens is they're going to go into a nurture, nurture cadence and get either emails or phone calls or both from an SDR. Um, I audit somewhere between three and seven, mainly SaaS companies per month. I see that tactic used a lot. And when you look at it from a cost per lead, lead and a, um, a, a lead, lead volume standpoint, it looks great. But when you track what's happening throughout the funnel, it exposes a lot of problems with that, with that idea, which is that the the close rates of those leads will be somewhere between 0.1 and at the at best 0.5%, which means that whatever your cost per lead is, your customer acquisition cost is going to be somewhere between 500 and 2,000 times bigger. And so, so when you calculate it out to revenue, you understand that there's a lot of inefficiencies in that model. One, the customer acquisition cost is super high. Secondly, your sales team's calling 999 people that don't buy. And so both of those things is, is really tough from a, from a lead gen standpoint. If you're looking for sales and marketing alignment, no sales rep wants to call your 950th lead that you sent them when the 949 before it didn't close, right? And so that's, that's a key takeaway there. Cool, so let's bounce. Um, you posted something a little while ago, I liked it, um, which was the 10 misconceptions of demand gen. And so I was hoping maybe focus on a couple and we can go deeper on those, the things that you felt really strongly about. Let's do it. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, Chris, also one thing you said about the, the lead magnet assets, right? Um, it all depends on how you're using those assets. And, um, you know, like, for example, running cold ads, maybe to lookalike audiences on, on paid social, yeah, you, you collect, you know, leads. Uh, that's really a contact, actually. Uh, <laughs> when you, someone submits that form on paid social, it's ice cold, right? The, the intent is awful. But that same lead magnet asset, 
used on a feature page, hmm, you might want to consider treating that differently. You, you don't want to run that through your normal top of fun, nurture, top of funnel nurture, right? You may have a different uh, cadence and, and lead management um, or contact management process around those depending on intent level. So it does also depend, I would say, how you're using those assets, what kind of traffic you're getting to them, and what pages uh, on your website you're using them on I think is crucial. Um, but anyway, yeah, so you just had me thinking about that as you said that last point. But let's get into the, to the misconceptions. So I think um, this, this post of mine went pretty big uh, because there are a lot of misconceptions out there about demand gen and um, what it's about. So I'll go through maybe the first couple, Chris, and then we'll, we'll bounce back and forth on them. Does that sound good? Cool. Yeah, let's do right. it. So uh, the first one is that everyone thinks that demand gen is just ABM, that, that you're primarily focused on ABM and that um, you're, you're primarily focused on outbound and that you're using mostly um, vendors and agencies to do a lot of the traditional homegrown marketing functions that are still critical to any marketing flywheel operation. So we're talking about things like content marketing, like SEO, like uh, PPC, like your retargeting, right? Um, your CRO. ad copy, copywriting, yeah. CRO, right? Um, so the idea is that uh, the misconception is that, okay, uh, demand gen marketers don't do this stuff anymore. They just, they're campaign managers. So they're, they're, they're really getting together with those units that are going to go outbound and try to attack those, those target accounts, that target account list, right, that maybe sales ops or marketing ops has put together. And that's all you're doing. You're doing ABM, and then the fundamentals have been stripped out. So I'll pause there and let you react to that real, real quick before we move on to the next one. Yeah, I mean, we could go down a rabbit hole here on, on ABM account-based marketing for a while. Um, I've kind of been loud about that enough, so I'll, I'll save it. But the, the fact is that um, the ABM that's happening right now is basically outbound cadences with direct mail or banner ads and other stuff mixed in, all driven toward getting the meeting. That is sales, not demand gen. <laughs> and so um, that's, kind of how I, that's kind of how I feel about that. And another takeaway for marketers here is as a marketer, you really need to think. And when I, when I figured this out, um, my career changed, which is that you need to be able to decide on every execution that you're doing. Are you doing sales or are you doing marketing? Most marketers are doing sales. They are transactional. I'm trying to get a thing. It changes your behavior. It changes the things that you do. When you're doing marketing, you're focused on the buyer. You are focused on education. You are not focused on transactional conversions. You're, you're, that, is, that is an output of good marketing is the conversion, not the actual activity. Um, and so, yeah, I'll, I'll pause there and let it bounce it back to you. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's, <laughs> I think, you know, there, there's, there, now there is a lot of overlap, right? Like the best, you know, I, I especially now with, with, with what's going on in the current climate, um, the best salespeople are learning how to do marketing and acting more as marketers than sales. And this is crucial right now because, you know, budgets are drying up. Everyone's pushing out, you know, uh, buying activities for the next three, four, five, six months. And there's a lot of 
uncertainty around that. So, um, you know, I think, like you said, there is some overlap, but then at the end of the day too, it's like, am I doing marketing or am I doing sales? And there should be some kind of distinction, uh, among that. Um, but Chris, it's I, okay. Not, like as a, as a marketer, it's, it's, if you want to go and do performance marketing and get 200 leads or do PPC or right. bar, like social conversion ads, it's great. It's okay. Just recognize that that's what you're doing. Right. And then figure yeah. out how to balance your mix between the brand aspect and the performance aspect. If that's the way you want to go. That's right. That's right. Let's get into another misconception. Um, mm-hmm. and this one, Chris, I know you're kind of, you're kind of big on this, but the, the misconception is that, um, demand gen should have a revenue quota and that feeds in, the, in exactly to what we were just talking about. Um, so my take is that if demand gen has a revenue quota, wouldn't we just be a sales team then? Why should we have a revenue quota? We need to market. We shouldn't be, mm-hmm. we shouldn't be focused on it because what you do, it's the same reason. It's the same thing that happens when you give customer success a quota. Guess what happens? They stop focusing on providing great service and they get too, they get too antsy and too focused on the wrong things. It creates bad behaviors, right? Um, and the same thing with demand gen marketing. As soon as you say, Hey, demand gen, you now have a revenue quota. And guess what happens? You, you, you ignore things like top of funnel, you ignore, you start ignoring things like brand, you start getting down this rabbit hole of, let me just be a greedy marketer and focus purely on bottom funnel as much as possible. And you don't, you stop playing the long game. And then what ends up happening is it just creates bad behaviors. And eventually you just stop marketing. Well, you just get too you, you get too uh, pigeonholed and too tunnel vision on the wrong things. And I'll, I'll pause there and allow some time for a reaction on that. Cause I know it's a, it's a big one. Yeah, and by the way, anyone that just came in, uh, the Q&A box, drop questions in. Uh, if you got anything, we're going to jump into questions pretty soon. So my take on this is different. Um, I think the caveat being that you need to have the right marketing leader in order for them to own a marketing or a revenue quota. Uh, I do believe, like, we go into companies, Refine Labs, and after a period of somewhere between three and six months where we have data and we have budget, and we it's clear we have a funnel uh, a pipeline built up, we will own a revenue number, but it's not a number, then it's actually a percentage of total revenue, total net new logo revenue. And so if it looks like that, let's say sales is responsible for 35% and marketing source is responsible for 65%, but it doesn't get into channel attribution or any of those things. So all we're looking for is a website or inbound sales conversion past the sales. What is the, what is the, revenue and pipeline generated off those leads and if you have a disciplined marketing leader that can that can organize the mix you will be able to own that that number i believe over time and if you do it well that number should continue to grow right like i think a lot of companies right now companies out here are either feeling it or if not are very vulnerable to how much uh they are relying on outbound and overnight outbound becomes very, very uh, much more difficult to do given the climate. And so, and what we see right now, at least from the, the clients that we work with, the clients that the companies that know how to market well, specifically digital execution, digital social, um, are actually seeing better results if they're not restricted by the product that they're selling. So if they have a product that can, that fits into this climate, they're actually doing better. 
because it's the only it's one of the only marketing or go to market channels that's that works right now. Um, so anyway, I kind of bounced around there, but I uh, I feel just to recap, the right marketing leader should be able to own a revenue a net new logo revenue contribution. All right, yeah, I'm I'm good with leaving it at that. I think we should get to some Q and A. There's a lot piling up. Maybe mm-hmm. we attack some of it and then get back to the the you know the regular schedule of content. So uh, yeah, Chris, yeah, yeah. Let's take it away. Yeah, let's pick one. Uh, okay, great question from Andrew. It says, other than revenue, what are some good metrics to use for measuring demand gen performance? Okay, yeah, that's a good one. So, um, <clears throat> I think it also depends quite a lot on like, uh, the sales cycle, the sales process, the sales velocity. If you're, um, uh, let's say a lower average contract value, say, you know, in the 10 to $20,000 range, uh, and your, your sales process is more higher velocity, uh, you're probably going to have more of an inbound motion with your, with your demand gen strategy, right? Because, um, you, you can't waste your time going, going outbound for, for small fish, right? It just doesn't work that way. You need to cast a wider net for shrimp. And the way you do that is with inbound. So that means that inbound channels like SEO, content marketing, um, also uh, Google ads, right? These are going to be more important uh, if, if, that's part, if that's the way your, your sales process works. So I would, I would you know, kind of frame it off by saying that lead quality is ultimately the North Star metric for demand gen. Uh, so you, you need to be looking at basically, you know, where do the best sources of leads come from and how do we get more of them? And that could be, you know, defining it at the keyword level, if it's an inbound strategy, at the content type level or the page level. Um, it could also be the case that um, it's it's not digital channels, right? Uh, I mean, before this this whole thing happened, maybe events were part of, of your, your mix and maybe that's where the best lead sources came from. So I think it all depends on kind of aligning it back to how your sales process works, but Ultimately, I believe that, you know, lead quality is uh, the North Star metric for demand gen. That's, and there's, you know, leading and lagging indicators on all this stuff, you know, for, for conversion rates on landing pages, uh, you know, that's the lagging indicator. The leading indicator to that is traffic. You can't get conversions on a landing page without traffic. So it all depends on, on a lot. So the, it's the classic it depends answer, but there are a lot of metrics out there. And maybe I'll pause there, allow some reaction from you, Chris, and then you can jump in. Yeah, for sure. So the way that I look at it is there's basically like four core business metrics that matter to demand gen, revenue, qualified pipeline generated through inbound conversions like we already talked about, the sales cycle length off of those conversions, and the win rate off of those conversions. So win rate would be a surrogate to lead quality. Um, and then comparing those to your baseline, which is whatever other things you're doing to get revenue. And so if you make those comparisons, let's just pretend it's just inbound and outbound, your demand gen, at a- aka inbound, should have win rates that are higher. It should have sales cycles that are shorter if you're doing your job well. And then you, you have to look at your business and your spend and how things are allocated to determine what your contribution to pipe and revenue should be. And uh, Gatano went into a lot of the leading indicators. So a marketer should look at all of those indicators as things to know whether at the channel level things are going right. 
Um, and then the last thing that I wanted to offer is that there are some things that you can't measure. There's a lot of demand gen impact that people ignore because they can't measure it that are so important. So like, I'm, I'm trying to give, try and give you an example so that it'll, it'll really work. Like as, as a demand gen marketer, especially if you're mo going multi-channel, regardless of attribution, you can feel the things that are working the best and which ones aren't. I was on LinkedIn, I don't know, like July of last year, had barely any followers. Um, my posts would get five likes. Like I didn't have an, a content engine and my content wasn't that good. I had it in my head, but I hadn't figured out how to communicate it. But I knew it was the right place because I would post and I would get two comments from the right people and they were engaged and I could see the activity across the platform and I knew it was the place, but the data wouldn't tell me that. And then when I did it for the first three months, and I would post and then I would get eight likes and then I would get 19 likes. And I've posted about this before on LinkedIn. If you were in a company and you were testing a channel, it would never, executives would never give it enough time to show that it would work. If you, if you start a podcast today, you're not gonna see results, attributable results tomorrow. They probably won't, not even within 90 days. So an executive is gonna cut that budget. So I, the, the reason for me saying that is there's an element where you can't, you can't measure it, you gotta know. And you know by the qualitative sentiment of the people that are reading your content, what they're saying in the comments, um, what they're saying in DMs that they send you, uh, what types of people are commenting on it. And then, and then you have to feel like, if I, I post a lot on LinkedIn, uh, most of our entire demand gen from my company happens on LinkedIn, but HubSpot will tell me that it comes through organic search or direct traffic because somebody then goes to Google, searches my company, goes to the website, converts. I know that it came from LinkedIn, HubSpot doesn't. And so that's the, that's the piece that's not measurable is there's a lot of things, if you look at it uh, very directly, that might drive you in the wrong directions. Yeah, oh, I love it, I love it. I think, uh, I think we can square off on that one. Uh, this cool. is a great yeah. question from MJ cool. Peters. Uh, MJ says, you guys both lead teams, how do you identify and hire the best marketing talent. Um, Chris, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll give it a stab and then I'll pass it over to you. All cool. right. So a um, couple of things on this. One is if your company is remote, you're obviously at a tremendous advantage because you can hire from anywhere. Uh, so I'll just start off by saying that. Um, if you're a company that is, let's say, in, I don't know, Phoenix, Arizona, it's going to be difficult to find really good growth marketers in Phoenix, Arizona. The talent pool is much smarter, uh, much smaller. You're not going to be able to get as much volume. You're not going to have as many at bats, right? So remote automatically gives you an advantage. Um, in terms of how you identify the best marketing talent, I always, 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 always require a candidate to go through a test project. And that test project can be something like uh, take, take any landing page on the website and give me a list of recommendations on what you would do to get it to rank better in search and get it to convert better, right? I'm not looking for fluffy sort of theory-based ideas um, saying I would, I would double down more on paid social or I would go harder on retargeting. Yeah, what does all that mean? I want to see tactics, right? I need to see, because here's the biggest thing, and especially in demand gen, people are bullshitters, right? Big bullshitters. So you have to give them a very tactical test project in order to kind of, you know, uh, sniff it out. 
Um, and that's pretty much the only way that you can do it. Uh, so, um, I guess I'll pause there, pass it over to Chris, but just what jumps out of top of mind, it's those two things. Yeah. I was, I was chuckling cause you don't know, but MJ's based in Phoenix and you had mentioned you picked that out of all the different places you could pick. So that was funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. so, um, the, the couple things that I've been using recently as I've, as I've done more hiring is to look at how someone markets themselves on LinkedIn. It's not going to be, it's not going to be perfect. There's a lot of people that are great and they don't use LinkedIn that way. And that's totally fine. But if you're kind of like, uh, prospecting for hiring, like LinkedIn, the people that know how to content market is a great place. Um, uh, that's one. I totally agree on the project. It has to be done. Um, I like to keep them somewhere between two and three hours so that it's not like you're doing someone's doing a bunch of free work. So, and I tell them that it's, I'm looking more about how you do the project, how you communicate it and how you think about it. Not necessarily whether it's right or wrong. You don't have all the context about my company or whatever I'm giving you. It's about how you think about a project. Um, and when I've done that, my hiring success rate, if you look at retention in the next six to 12 months is significantly better. I've made several bad hires by not doing the project. Yeah, exactly. And to, to cap off on this, I would say um, you have to ask them, the candidate that you have, what number did you carry in your past role? And what was the outcome of you carrying that number directionally? Did that number go up or down over time? And, and explain why. And then that will give you, I think, a great overview of, of, of what you're looking for in a candidate. Um, maybe let's go to some yeah. more Q and a, it says, this is a great, uh, yeah, I, I got, Oh, okay. Go. Oh, sorry. I, I was, I got one. <laughs> I, I got one. I want to answer, but yeah, please go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I think we <laughs> should do this one. And then the one you got, so this one comes from an anonymous <laughs> attendee. Um, what would you do if you had zero budget for marketing? If I had zero budget for marketing, what would I do? Um, yeah, Chris, you, so go, you go the first. And I go. Get, yeah. We were looking at the same <laughs> one. So this is awesome. Okay. Um, great. Go for it. So, so what I would do, um, and it's sort of depending on what you're selling, but if you're in B2B and you have zero, zero budget, you got to be making videos and podcasts for LinkedIn every day. Yeah. That's basically the strategy. The, the alternative strategy is SEO. I just believe that the bang for your buck or the, you know, you don't have any budget. So the bang for your time an effort is better spent on LinkedIn than it is on SEO. Um, I think it's a very clear cut answer actually. The, and then if you create the podcast and the videos for LinkedIn, put them on YouTube, search optimize them in YouTube, put them on your website, SEO, like get transcriptions, SEO, like, and then chop it up and put it on LinkedIn and then take the audio from the video and make a podcast for it. And then you're basically everywhere with almost no budget. Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it, Chris. You, what you, if, you have, if you have zero budget, what you have to do is nail some sort of flywheel, the marketing flywheel. You need a rhythm of regularly um, executable activities that are going to create momentum for you and give you, um, you know, compounding results uh, quick, more quickly than you would if you had, if you had budget, right? So you're obviously not going to be spending money on ads. You're not going to be outsourcing anything. You're not going to be doing anything with agencies. So you also have to align to, to the skill set of the marketing team that you have, right? If you have like two or three marketers, but no budget, or maybe one marketer and no budget, what is that marketer good at? Right. And hopefully it's writing. 
Hopefully it's content creation. Hopefully it's brand building. Hopefully it's the things that Chris said, right? Uh, start a podcast in your niche. Um, identify, you know, the top 100 people in that industry, interview every single one of them, repurpose that content into YouTube, into, um, you know, short snackable size content for social, um, send, send those episode recordings and send that content to every other influential person and just start infiltrating, you know, one by one sort of building an army of, of content and influential people that you can get to, uh, essentially join your, your, your movement. And, uh, you know, me personally, as I'm a little bit biased toward this, but I do believe there is SEO value. Uh, if you have no money, you just have to go for very, very long tail keywords. So question-based content, um, content around like complex problems that are very, um, kind of obscure searches. There's gold out there that is, that is easy to rank for. Um, without, you know, that, that's not going to take you six months, right? Like you're not going to try and rank for something like CRM software. It's just not going to happen. Even if you have money, that's not going to happen. But you might be able to rank for something like, you know, uh, frequently asked questions about CRM strategy for real estate. Hmm. You know, that's a nine, that's like, there's like nine, you know, words in that phrase, right? So as long tail as that is, there's not going to be a lot of volume around it, but there sure as hell going to be intent. And then I think to kind of cap off on this, there's forums that are already ranking, right? And there's other websites that are already ranking. So what you want to do is find those websites that are talking about the service and the product or the kind of brand that you have and get featured with those websites, essentially stealing audiences. And, and, and on the flip side of that, get interviewed on podcasts. Don't just create your own, but get interviewed on other people's podcasts. That's how you create this ampli amplification effect. And over time, uh, with no money, you're going to be pretty amazed at the results that can happen if you execute well. Mm -hmm. It all comes down to execution. The strategies are actually quite simple. All right, man, I got a, I got a good one. Actually, one that I'd like to take the answer first because I'll, I'll set the floor and then I'm really interested in what you got. So the question is how to do demand gen in long sales cycles with high ticket products. And so the first place that I'd like to start with this is that, and I, I know this to be true because I've worked at companies that sell high ticket products that had long sales cycles and I changed that, is that the sales cycles are long because of how they're selling it. And so, and that has, that's no knock on sales. That's a lack of good demand gen actually. Um, and so I worked at a company, they, the average, selling price of the products that they were selling was about 100k uh selling stuff into hospitals and when i got in there the sales cycle was 210 days and when we were running demand gen and we'll get into some tactics but we we started running demand gen and 12 months later the the blended sales cycle because they had almost no inbound flow before the blended sales cycle was 120 days and the inbound sales cycle was 57 days the reason being is because when you market well, people come to you and you don't have to go to them. And when they come to you, they're 70% done. So on average, if you do demand gen well, you should see sales cycles go down somewhere between 50 and 75% of what your outbound is. And so getting into how to do demand gen and long sales cycle products, the one of the places where people go wrong, in my view, is that it's so transactional when the, the sale is not transactional. You're selling a complex sale, but you're doing transactional marketing. Uh, the ebook thing that we got into um, running 
webinars where your SDRs follow up right afterwards, doing trade shows where your salespeople follow up right afterwards for people that don't really have a lot of interest. Um, the thing, the thing, and this actually goes across no matter what, how long your sales cycles are uh, or how expensive your products are, is you need to create the most value for someone in order to create brand awareness so that they have the opportunity to understand what you do. Um, and so for in, in that case, I would focus on the exact same strategies. I would crush long form video. If you're selling high ticket products with long sales cycles, my guess is you guys have enough money to go and produce high quality long form video. Um, inside of that strategy, what I would do is I would pick 20 customers that aren't on your 20 prospects, excuse me, that aren't on your ABM target list. So you're not actively selling to, and I would call up whoever, or I would DM on LinkedIn, whoever is the buyer of what you're trying to sell. So let's just pretend it's the CMO. And I would, I would DM the 20 CMOs at companies like the ones that I'm actively trying to sell to. And I would say, Hey, we're starting, you know, the site, you know, best, uh, I was going to do a cybersecurity example, but this is a CMO, the, you know, top B2B marketing CMOs and cybersecurity podcast would love to have you on the show and then interview them. And what happens is that then you produce content with somebody that is exactly like the people that you're trying to sell to, which creates thought leadership, brand awareness. You get market research straight away because you can go and ask the CMO 20 questions in a non-sales situation to learn do that 20 times over and continue to produce content that way. And once you'll find out that once you do 10 of them, that you have such a better pulse of what the market actually needs, then you can go and create your own content. Then you have your own engine running and you can do this in parallel. And that's how you get started with demand gen in long sales cycle, high ticket products. Yeah, dude. Brilliant. I mean, that's that's literally the playbook. I think, I think, <laughs> Where a lot of uh, companies go wrong with this is they um, they they kind of they lose the 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 focus on pipeline acceleration. So there's pipeline acceleration techniques that you can use um, to speed things up, and um, one one that I I've used a lot. Um, I obviously I'm not using it now because of what's happening, but events and not big events. And I think this kind of goes back to the misconceptions list where you need a big fancy booth where you drop in 70 K to, you know, to engage with a, with a group of potential buyers. One, one thing that, that a lot of companies forget about is the, the importance and impact of small intimate events. So I'm talking about, you know, maybe doing a 10 person dinner, right. And then you plant an existing customer at that table with a bunch of prospects, right. And guess what's going to happen through natural interaction that that customer is going to rave about the company, about the, the brand, about the product, about the impact, about the ROI, about damn, we wouldn't be able to, you know, uh, the before and after scenario where before service X, we were this after service X, we're here. Right. Um, so there's, there's all sorts of ways to leverage third party um, kind of validation. To, to achieve pipeline acceleration and you just got to get creative with it. It can't always be the same playbooks. Can't always be, Hey, here's a case study about how, um, you know, you're a construction company. Here's how another construction company uses us. And this is the results they're getting or even worse. Hey, your competitor uses us. Here's the results they're getting. Right. <laughs> like, you know, you have to get down a little bit more, um, 
into the into the deeper kind of um, ways that 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 motivates people to buy, and it's not just always these surface level tactics. So, I guess I'll close it out there. Right on, man. Do you want to uh, you want to pick the next one? Yeah, let's do it. There's a lot of there's All a right. lot of good questions in here, and, and we're gonna go for another. Uh, you know, however long it takes twenty, thirty, forty, however long people want to stay, we'll answer questions. So feel free to drop some more in if well our answers are uh, generating follow-ups. Do you want to ask specific questions about you know something that you're working on? Feel free to drop it in. Yeah. Okay. Great. So this one is from Dakota. I like this one. Um, the question is. What are some of the biases that you had coming into digital marketing and what did you have to eliminate um, in order to find success in demand gen and overall just consistently hitting your goals? Um, and then uh, the follow-up to that was, are there some processes that you can share um, around this? So uh, Chris, I'll let you go first. I have a lot of thoughts on this, but I'll let you go first. All right, great. So, the the number one thing that I had when I when I started doing real demand gen when I was like 26 or 27, um, I had the wrong data. Like the way that I was trained to do marketing was not the way to do marketing today. It was the way to do marketing 15 years ago, and so I had to eliminate that and start bringing in information from people that knew what they were talking about today. I went to the I went to the trade shows. I sent the direct mail. I gave the sales team the training and the brochures. It didn't work. I and I was smart enough to recognize that. And then I went and found the things that I I needed I needed to find so that I could go and and start learning and doing my thing. Um, and another big one that that I had to get over was that the don't be one dimensional on any channel. And so like at, at the beginning. I was heavy SEO. Um, and then I started having a ton of success. It probably changed my career. It was like 2015 B2B Facebook that nobody was doing. I spent six months trying to convince our company to run B2B Facebook ads to sell to doctors because doctors don't use Facebook. And I, I knew that they were there. And, and you know, it's a, it's a sad, it's been a sad six months for me over the past little bit because Facebook's performance is declining. But that's not a, it's, it's not a bad thing for me because I know where to go after that. And so now it's LinkedIn, it's YouTube, it's more on video and podcasts. And so like, um, those, are, those are the two takeaways. One, get, make sure you're learning from the right people. Um, make sure that, that, that that's probably number one. And number two is, is make sure that you're constantly auditing the things that you're doing and make sure that you're open to new opportunities as they present themselves. A lot of people are closed off to LinkedIn because it's a recruiting platform like it was in 2014 and people's lives are changing that are marketing while they're right now. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, <clears throat> some of the misconceptions I had, I think were, I think I was, I was a little bit too optimistic on a few things. Like for example, I said to my, to my CMO, you know what, if we can rank number one in Google for this keyword, our lead gen overnight is going to explode. We're, we, the result, we're going to increase leads, qualified leads by 25% if we can rank number one for this keyword. It has so much commercial intent. It's such a high cost per click. It's so difficult that if we do this, I'm confident we're going to see massive lead gen. 
And guess what happened? We went through this whole process. We ranked number one for this incredibly difficult keyword. And leads did increase, but not by as much as I, you know, hyped it up, right? Um, now, it was still a success story, don't get me wrong. But what it really opened up my eyes to more than anything was how scattered the buying process truly is in B2B nowadays. You would think that, you know, a bottom of funnel keyword, high commercial intent, landing page, ranking number one in search is going to, you know, really skyrocket lead gen. And what happens a lot of the time is that bottom of funnel intent is not as bottom of funnel as you thought. Uh, even though it's a product oriented keyword or a feature oriented keyword, these, these B2B buyers, they're still in shopping mode, right? It's so hard to nail the intent, right? And I get the whole thing behind intent data. Yeah, they're on G2 looking at your reviews and then G2 sends you a, a notification. Hey, intent is surging with this account because they're, you know, in the past week, three people from that company have looked at your reviews page, right? But that still doesn't necessarily tell you how close they are to making a decision. So I think um, one thing that surprised me was just even the things you think are like really strong buying signals, you just, you can't predict it as much as you think because the buying process is so erratic, so unpredictable. Like Chris said, you know, organic search, um, maybe a blog article, then maybe, you know, a couple of weeks later they click on a retargeting ad. Um, you, you know, they might get an email, like you just, right. They heard the podcast and they do a brand search for your brand in, 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 in Google and they go to the homepage and then check out from the get started CTA in the upper right side. Right. You just, you can't predict as much as you think and never get too optimistic on one tactic or channel because it's always going to surprise you. Right on. Thanks, man. I'm picking up another one here. Give me a sec. We got some good ones in here. Uh, I do like okay. George's comment here. I, before you get into this yeah. question. I yeah, do it. Do it. Shout out to George real quick. Um, the best tip he says is turn your happy customers into heroes. And, you know, there's no doubt about it. Re referrals, just, they're always going to be the highest converting source of leads. It's hard to scale a referral program. I think you need somebody on it full time once your company gets to a certain size. But, you know, I, George, I don't disagree with that. I, I think that's a fantastic tip. So thanks for contributing that. All right. We will go jump to Danielle's question, which says, when it comes to long sales cycles, how do you handle ghosting or when your main internal champion moves on either within the co company or externally? We try ABM that we have more than one contact, but sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah. All right. So I'll throw my two cents into the ring and then Chris, I'll pass it to you, man. So, you know, somebody actually did this technique to me and it worked. It was, it literally had nothing to do with selling at all. It was a brand new email thread. It wasn't a continuation follow-up on something else. It was, um, the subject line was, how are you? Question mark. And then the, 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 the text of the email was very informal. It was, I know things are hectic right now. Just checking in to see if you're okay with everything that's going on here to chat if you need anything. And I responded to that and I said, um, well, thank you for checking in that, that, that was, that was really, you know, a great approach there. Cause you didn't like, I didn't explicitly say you didn't try to sell me, but I knew that 
you know, they weren't trying to sell me something. They weren't sending me a case study or, Hey, sign up for this webinar on how to transition to remote work. Like I know a lot of people are doing that. What I liked about it was that it goes against the grain of what everyone else is doing. It was very almost like a friend sending me a text. Hey man, I know, you know, the, the, the crazy, you know, virus is going on right now. Are you and your loved ones good? Just, you know, checking in whatever. Right. Um, so I think that is a highly underrated tactic and it's one that's so obvious that so many people don't think about even in this case, Danielle is saying, yeah, we're trying ABM. What is that? <laughs> what are you like? What, what, are, what are you doing? Are you sending them a case study? Are you sending them Sendoso direct mail? Right. Um, so it's, it, I'll just pause there. I can go on on this, but Chris, I'll pass it to you. Yeah. I mean, for me on this one, I think it comes down to empathy and like, I am a seller sometimes and other times I'm a buyer and you know, sometimes either it's when I'm a buyer and I'm ghosting someone to lower my priority list. I chose a different vendor. I have no updates. Um, I'm not the actual decision maker and the decision maker said no. And I don't want to be the person to tell you that there are a million different reasons. The first place is to start from a place of empathy and try and understand what it's like for them. Um, and then from there, I think the next best place would be to try and have an opportunity to understand. Um, and so one of the things, this is an interesting one um, uh, that you could use. So I've done this before for, um, for my sales team is if a deal was stalled, I would call, I the marketer that's not, has no vested interest in whether or not the deal closes, except for wanting to support my team would call the person who is making the decision and say, I'm the, um, you know, director of customer happiness or brand or a, a title like that and try and just understand what went wrong to learn. Um, and that is actually, so if you can find someone that can take on that thing, some people will call it dishonest. I don't think that it is. I call it win-loss analysis. I would consider that deal from a sales perspective lost until you go and do that um, and, and try and understand. And sometimes you'll hear, that sales rep was in it was talking to me for nine months and we were never going to buy. I'm in a contract with a competitor for four years. I've heard that before. I don't know what they were. I don't know what she was doing, but we literally can't buy your product until 2023 is what I was told. Um, I I've heard, you know, we just got busy and it just gives you a little bit of insight. So um, I don't know if that's helpful, but it's worked for me in the past one, whether you're restarting deals or you're being able to give really actionable feedback to your sales team, both things are wins for me. Um, and so that's what I got. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think one of the best tactics I've ever seen is just someone straight up saying, Hey, you've, you haven't responded to my last three emails. Um, I know you, you, maybe you're busy or something happened, priorities changed, but I would really appreciate if you could just be straight up with me and let me know, is there, is there a real potential here? Um, or should we just, you know, respectfully part ways, um, and, and close this, this, this thing out. Right. And, and more, t more often than not, when I get that, like the breakup, you know, you know, from, from, a, from a rep, that's when I will come back and say, all right, they're on their last limb here. There's something psychologically that makes me want to just put closure to it. So I'll say either, yeah, there's no interest here. You know, priorities changed. We're, we're not interested. There's nothing here. You know, don't bother wasting your time. Go work on opportunities that actually have life to them, 
right? A sales rep loves hearing that. Getting to a no is great, right? You move on, you stop the chase, and you focus on real opportunities. So that's one thing. Um, or I might turn around and say, actually, there is real interest here, but um, because of X, Y, and Z, we have to deprioritize it. Why don't you try me again in six months? And that is sometimes the way that it goes because we grow numb to these tactics. Hey, check out this ebook. Hey, I'm just trying to engage with you with this new blog article from our, you know, our VP of marketing, right? Or this new, you know, this or that or this or that, this webinar, this podcast. Like sometimes we just, we know what you're doing. We know you're sending that content because you want to get a rise out of us. Not because you really think it's going to add value. Even if it does, we know the real purpose is so that we'll think of you again, We'll get you, you'll get back into our mind. You'll start penetrating again. And then maybe that could lead to the next step, which is let's get that demo call scheduled. Come on, guys. We know better. Okay. We got one here from Andrew, which says, hit answer, B2B versus B2C demand gen. Uh, Chris, your post about a week ago got me thinking about focusing on awareness for B2B advertising as opposed to con conversion. I started thinking about B2C. Thoughts on how they are similar, thoughts on how they're different. Would love to hear your thoughts. Take it away, man. Right, Chris, you, you. It's an interesting. I uh, can yeah. go for it. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. I mean we, we both, I think we both, you and I see very eye to eye on this. We're very aligned in our. Um, the way that we think about this, um, I, I feel like I already know what you're going to say, but you know, it, it's, it comes down to intent channels at the end of the day. Um, was that person who was browsing through LinkedIn, um, really in the market for a CRM and you're advertising the CRM strategy guide, um, or, or not, right. Is it interruptive or not? Um, Facebook, they were looking to creep on their ex-girlfriend, right? They didn't expect to see, uh, the ultimate guide to customer experience, even though they're a customer experience manager and there is some relevance there, even if they do download that, they just want the guide. They're probably going to put fake contact info. All right. So, um, you know, looking at it from a lead, pure lead gen and lead standpoint, I think is the wrong, um, tactic for, for paid social at this point. I do think that retargeting can be powerful. So, right. They go to your e-commerce checkout page. If it's B2C, they don't convert, you know, it's the old, it's the classic Amazon technique that ad follows you around until you buy. Um, that still works because it, people, they wouldn't, Amazon wouldn't be doing it if it didn't work. Right. So, um, I think, uh, it just comes down to intent channel and I think that's all I'll say about it. Maybe Chris, you can take it off from here. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, for those that, that don't know, um, I started to B2C e-commerce companies. I think it was one of the most powerful things I ever did uh, early in my career. One, I started at 23, um, importing goods from China, rebranding them, and then marketing. Uh, and the second one, I was importing a premium product from Turkey and then selling an e-com on Shopify and mainly through Instagram in that channel. Uh, and the learnings of that were so helpful. Like I understand all social dynamics to try and sell something now because I spent so much time in 2013 marketing on Facebook ads to try and sell speakers that I imported from China. And, and then again in 2016 on Instagram, a ton of different learnings. So anyway, um, I'd encourage anyone that really wants to figure out how to do marketing to try that. The reason being is that 
I did those things. And then I started applying everything I learned from the B2C model, trying to sell a $60 blanket on Amazon to a B2B model. And what I learned in the, in the B2B versus B2C is that brand wins over transactions. And so uh, I think those two apply, whether you're selling a $50, um, you know, $50 phone case versus a $500,000 enterprise SaaS tool, like brand will win over transactional approach. Um, sure, some people will be able to get on to Instagram and run ads and have a customer acquisition cost that's $12 and a profit margin that's $13.5 and make a dollar uh, $1.50 transaction and go through. People make money doing that. Um, but what happens when the LinkedIn CPMs go up by 50 cents, you end up getting underwater and then your, your profit, you end up losing money on every transaction, your business goes away. And so that's the reason that I think that if you are going to do it, you should focus on brand first. So I was able to take a, a thing out of nowhere and get an Instagram following to 4,000 people and Insta the Instagram following drove all of the conversions, all the sales organic. Meanwhile, I was running ads on it, PPC ads on Amazon. I was running direct response purchase ads on Instagram stories and Instagram um, feed ads and the organic channel worked the best. Uh, the reason being is because you've built up an actual relationship. You've built relevance with the person before they made the, the purchase. A lot of people, this will happen, whether it's on me marketing on LinkedIn, whether it's someone on, like on the Instagram that I'm marketing blankets for, whether it's any of the clients that we work for, it's usually not the first touch that someone goes in and converts and buys something. That is not how it works, except that people treat it that way. Even if it's multi-touch, they still treat it like a linear process. And people are all over the place. And so um, the, I think the takeaway here is that no matter what you're selling, you need to be able to get someone's attention, which is hard enough. You have to, I, I, it's not get the attention, it's earn the attention. How do you earn the attention? By either being entertaining, informational, um, aspirational. There's a lot of different ways to do it. And then at some point, you need to have the opportunity for them to see what you actually do. And so I do a lot of marketing on LinkedIn. And besides my title, like no one really knows what I do. I could be working at a company. Uh, Refine Labs could be anything. And then they get to my profile or they get to my company's website. And that's my opportunity to, to show them to give my value prop. Um, and so I think that type of natural flow applies to no matter what you're selling. You have to get someone's attention. And then at some point, you have a chance to tell a story about why they should or should not purchase whatever you're trying to sell. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it reminds me of the deposits versus withdrawals ratio. So it's the same reason why when you come across a juicy LinkedIn thread in your sales development and you find somebody that commented on maybe Chris's thread, maybe my thread, anybody's thread, and you're like, oh, wow, this is exactly the person I sell to. This is exactly the industry that I sell to. This person fits the criteria of someone who would buy. It's the decision maker. Oh, baby. Right. And you're, you, you know, you're licking your chops as an SDR. You see this and you're like, yes, you look into your, you know, Salesforce or whatever you're using as a CRM. And you're like, all right, no one has made contact with this person yet. It's, it hasn't been identified as any of our target accounts. This is they're here for the picking. This is something, this is a potential opportunity that I'm going to source and I'm going to go after. But it's the same reason why once you find that, 
You can't just ask for the meeting. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work. You have to warm that person up. You have to go to that person's profile, look at their content, engage with it, comment, share, like, come back a week later, do the same thing, get them to respond to one of your comments, go back, keep doing that, wait. And then once enough familiarity and rapport has happened, that's when you can creep into the, into the email or the DM and, and maybe follow up with something that, you know, you can't just say, Hey, I noticed you went to, you know, Arizona state university. So did I, ha ha, that's great. We have that in common. We should talk, <laughs> you know? So it's in marketing, it's the same thing. You have to warm up these, these, um, contacts before you, you know, it's the jab, jab, jab hook play. Um, so just like sales deposits with withdrawals, uh, marketing is no different. You're not going to get that conversion on the first touch. It just doesn't happen. Right on. So we'll do a couple more. Um, I just want to stop and take a, a couple polls from people. There's a, there's a raise hand button um, somewhere. I think there is. Um, if there's not, just someone drop it in the chat and tell me not to, to stop talking. But what, I, what, I want, what we want to know is if we did this again next, next week, would you come again? So we're trying to figure out that one. And the second piece is, Oh, we got some high, we got some hands raising. I like that. And the second one, um, maybe you just drop it in the chat or something afterwards, your preference. We did this one at night trying to get people covering, you know, both sides of the coast, kind of like a happy hour deal on the West coast and a little bit at night. If you got, if we did it again next week, would you prefer to have it in midday or around the same time? So just drop that in the chat, your preference, and then we'll use that. Appreciate you all. Let's get back into this. So uh, there's a question here from Joanna. It says, right. do, by the way, do everybody's saying same time, by the way, Chris, everybody's down for same right time. On. Cool. I like it. I like it. Um, do, so the question is, do we have any B2B marketers in the webinar that work for hardware companies, not SaaS? Curious what strategies they are deploying for demand gen and lead gen. Thanks. How do you feel about I, taking yeah, this one? Yeah. So I might be qualified on this. So I don't, while I don't work for a hardware company, um, the company I work for is a partner to a lot of hardware companies. So we sell the software component, uh, digital phone service, voice over IP, cloud communication, conference calling, conference bridges, these sorts of things. And we partner with companies like Polycom now known as Poly. Uh, Cisco, right? Um, all these hardware providers that um, provide the hardware, to, which is the counterpart to the service. Now, you don't necessarily need the hardware anymore. Um, there's now applications for, for you know, there, there's soft phone applications now to where if you didn't want a desk phone at all, you wouldn't need one. But um, obviously, there are a lot of companies and people that still place a tremendous amount of value on hardware. Now, what I would do if I was marketing for a hardware company is I would find as many software partners as possible to do co-marketing with. It just makes a lot of sense. It doesn't even necessarily have to be about your product and service. It could be some mid funnel or top funnel thing. And the idea is that if you keep partnering with as many partners as possible, doing co-marketing, doing webinars, doing uh, research studies, right? 
um, you're eventually going to um, see results from doing that because you're overlapping in the right audiences. You're relevant, right? You're providing value. And I would just do that with as many partners as possible, get interviewed on podcasts, do uh, webinars, eBooks, guest posting, right? Just overlap with as many audiences as possible, steal as much audience attention as you can from, from relevant places. And you're, you're going to be off to the races. There's going to be a, uh, a compounding sort of sonic boom effect that happens as you do that over time. And uh, you're going to, you're going to see results. So, so for me, the really critical difference between a hardware company and a SaaS company is the recurring revenue model. That's the main thing. So a SaaS company, because they have a recurring revenue model over time and understands what their lifetime value is, can then invest more in selling the product up front, knowing that they're going to get it later. The hardware company doesn't have that. It's one and done. They typically, there are hardware recurring revenue models and whatever, but for most it's, they sell the products, they make a margin, they move on. Now, the hardware companies have people that think about things in terms of margin because it's whatever profit they make on that one sale. And so they have their sales reps and then they have whatever the room is left. Some companies make 5% margin, other companies make 90% margin. And whatever that thing is, whatever the marketing expense on top of that, it just eats into the margin that they, that's the way that they see it. The way that we need to start looking at it differently in a hardware company is what is the customer acquisition cost all baked in and can we lower that by doing better demand generation? And the answer is yes. You will lower your customer acquisition costs if you do demand gen well, because one of two things will happen. You can either sell as much stuff with the same amount of reps or, or sorry, excuse me, you can sell more stuff with the same amount of reps or you can sell the same amount of stuff with less reps. I think everyone would go to the more stuff with the same amount of reps. Um, because you are, you are make each rep more productive by doing demand gen, whether it's augmenting their outbound, outbound efforts because there's more brand awareness, there's more affinity to the brand, or by providing them with more leads, they're going to close at a high rate and close fast. So um, I think the, the root of the issue is really about how executives at hardware companies think about growth and marketing. Um, that's kind of what I've been seeing as I interact with a lot of them in different industries like manufacturing and medical device, um, and places like that. I see a lot of companies think about it, uh, mainly that an additional marketing expense just eats into the margin, not about how it affects growth and rep productivity. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's, uh, let's maybe get a few more questions in Chris. What do you say? Yeah. Yeah. People are still on. Um, I'm down. You pick one. All right. Great. Yeah, we have. Thanks, uh, Thanks for everyone to stay on, by the way. We love it. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, my boy, Manny is on. What's up, Manny? <laughs> he's, <laughs> shout out to Manny. He's an um, OG in the marketing game. He's a, he's a sales and marketing, marketing veteran. Uh, good friend of mine. So let's go with, um, let's see. Hmm. Okay. This is an interesting one. Do you take into account your keywords? that are creating silos around your site when, when posting content or do you create the content and then map, map it back to keyword title, meta description, et cetera. 
So I think, I think what the question is, um, I think the question really is about, do you do the keyword research first and then create content around keywords or do you go the opposite? Do you reverse engineer it? Do you find out what kinds of problems that your customers are having and you create content around that more, more solution focused content? Um, do you listen to sales calls and listen to the common types of objections that are happening on those calls? And do you create content around those issues and then map it back reverse engineering style to those target keywords? And I think the short answer is that both work. I do both. Um, and here's, here's the, the advice that I will give you on this. If um, you already have a lot of bottom of funnel keyword driven content created, meaning let's say you are in um, CRM, you, you already know the kinds of CRM terms that convert, right? Um, and you've already hit most of those and now you're kind of stuck. You, you, you feel like, okay, I could do more keyword research around this, but I want to try and find some of those, those gems, right? Those gem topics that keyword research is not necessarily going to find for you. Then you start doing things like listening to sales calls. You start asking your, your, um, sales counterparts about the kinds of problems that the customers are having. You think about, um, what kinds of problems customers are having before they get to the point where they need to buy your solution. And you create content around that and then you reverse engineer it back to the relevant keywords. And usually these, these keywords have um, less volume, but higher intent. And the only way you're going to come up with these ideas is by really listening to customers and their problems. And I've done both. I've done it both ways. Uh, when I was at Sales Hacker, that was the strategy. It was literally, let's, you know, pull our community on what kind of content they want and build content around that rather than the content we think they want. Right. Cause there's a few obvious ones, but then it gets less obvious over time. And to really get deep into the content strategy that aligns with the buyer pain, you're going to need to do some, some investigating. So that would be my advice there. I hope that answers the question. Well, cool. Um, so full, full transparency. I do not pretend to, to be an SEO expert. I feel like I know it enough of, you know, had some stuff work. My, um, the way that I approach things is different. Um, and the way that I approach it is that basically there's two paths that you can take. You, if, if you want to create content based for search, you are basically waiting for someone to come and find you for something that's a topic. It can work. My approach is different, which is that I go out and find the people and then drive them into what, whatever they might need. And so they're not searching, um, how do I like fix this problem that I have? They're searching for the thing that we do, or better yet, they're searching for our brand because I've done all the marketing elsewhere. Um, and so that's what I've migrated to over the past five years. And so I do not plan keywords or anything. The approach for me is how do I create content at a high volume that is consistently bringing value to an audience, consistently growing. And how do I do that where I produce more and the quality doesn't decline? And if that's the case, if I produce more and the quality doesn't decline and the results go up, then over time the quality actually gets better. I build a team around me and, or whoever it's with. And then you have, it's not just me with a camera over here filming a video, but now there's a videographer and then there's two copywriters. And so um, 
that's kind of the way I, I've been doing it over the past five years. It's served me well. I know that a lot of people have success on SEO. I'm just transparent that that is not the way that I do it. I, I think you made some good points though, because, uh, you know, what a good, a really healthy sign of a good demand gen program is if your branded terms are growing, right? Your brand terms are growing. So, um, obviously there are non-branded terms that could grow in, in terms of volume, right? So, so for example, we have a, we have an article on Nextiva that's about working from home, working from home tips on a regular day, you know, that would get maybe a hundred clicks on a, on a day, like what's happening now, we're seeing three, four or 500 clicks, right. To that same content. So, uh, environmental things can happen that can cause surge in demand for certain things. But back to the point the original point, if you're doing demand gen the right way, the, 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 the volume, the trend for your branded terms is going to increase. It should increase month over month. If you're doing it the right way, it's the same reason why I'm not going to go to Amazon and search for a Yankee fitted hat. Cause I'm worried that I might get counterfeit products from China or, you know, other foreign countries that produce counterfeit goods or whatever like that, or lower quality. Right. Um, that's why I'm going to search, uh, New York Yankees fitted hat new era because I, I trust the new era brand of hats. I know that they're, that those hat, those hats are legit, right? Those are the real deal products. So, um, how have they done a good job of getting me to remember that? Well, I just know from seeing other people wear them that they're good quality right? They don't do any ads. I never see any new era ads. I see celebrities wearing them. I see my friends wearing them. And guess what? I want to wear them, right? Because <laughs> they, they look good. They're cool. They represent where I'm from and they're not knockoff cheap products. They're, they're, they're made to last. So that's, that's the sign. Cool. So I think this uh, will make this our last one. I appreciate all the questions. It's been great. So I'll pose this to you first from George. Thank you. Um, the cost of generating great content is the same regardless of the margins. So will this work for low ticket items? All right. So let's, let's unpack this one. Uh, the cost of generating great content is the same. <laughs> so, so um, I think that also depends, right? Like not necessarily. I think I, I would maybe caution that a little bit. Um, depends on the content type. Are we talking about video? You can create very high impact video for low cost. Um, you can do an iPhone video. You, I've seen successful ads. Ty Lopez, the, the, you know, I'm sure you guys may be familiar with him. He shoots, you know, these, these iPhone videos and they work, right? So I think the cost of great uh, content creation is not always the same, but um, I guess the, the real question is about the the, the ticket items, right? So does it, I guess what he's really getting at is, is it worth spending a lot of money on content creation, high quality content creation, when your uh, cost of your product is so low, right? And I guess the example that comes mm -hmm. to mind that, that, that I'm going to shatter George, George, I'm going to shatter your world a little bit here, man. Let's look at Dollar Shave Club, the most epic example of one very expensive, probably uh, piece of marketing collateral that literally changed their entire business for years and years to come. What do you think the ROI was of that hundred dollars? I don't know how much, Chris, how much do you think they spent it's on probably that? It's probably a hundred, probably a hundred K. And I don't even think it was an ad. I think it was a YouTube video. It was a YouTube might video. Have been yeah, ad. I don't know the full story. Yeah. 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 yeah I think it was, it was a YouTube, YouTube video, video, right? $100,000 YouTube video. The, the ROI on that is pff, 
oh man, I have to, I have to guess hundreds. I think they sold the Gillette for a billion. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, it, it, it definitely depends on a lot, but if you have a, and they have a low ticket cost product, right? Like they're selling, you know, razors, right? Subscription razor services, okay. like 10 bucks a month. Right. So, um, it all okay. depends on the kind of sales process you're going to have, um, all, all these sorts of things, but, uh, you, you should, I, I would think you should be creative and smart and, and frugal. Um, don't just default to the expensive route for content creation. There are still ways to do high impact content without spending, you know, boatloads of cash. I had a product marketer come in for an interview and, uh, this, this candidate goes, um, yeah, you know, I'm really big on customer videos and customer marketing videos. And I'm like, Oh, cool. What do you think are the you know most important components of, of a successful video? And the candidate said, well, to start off, I need a 30 K budget. Like 30 K budget for a video. I'm like, you know, you know, so I play dumb. I'm like, you know, what? humor me. Let me see an example of this video. The candidate pulls up the example of the video and it's like just the customer sitting in an office talking. That's 30 K. <laughs> right. So, so of course I didn't hire this person. Right. Um, but I think that kind of is, is the emphasis point here. Um, it's all about how you work it. That's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so the way that I'm going to answer the, the question is in the view of a relatively low ticket B2B product. So let's ignore the razors and stuff for this answer, but let's just pretend you're selling a product, which is uh, $200 MRR. So it'd be about $2,500 a year to buy the product. Anything above that, you're kind of in no man's land. So what's an example of a product that's like SaaS B2B that's like 250 a month, like an SEO tool like maybe? Lead, lead, IQ, lead IQ might lead do IQ. it. Um, okay. Something like that. Like um, oh, most of them, just from a pricing standpoint, you either want to be below 99 or you want to be above 499. It's kind of like no man's land in the middle. Um, anyway, let's just pretend it's 200 for the sake of round numbers. So if you're selling that product, um, the, the price is the price, right? And so it's as a go-to-market strategy, there are only so many ways that you can sell the product. You can go cold outbound BDR, which a lot of companies do at that price point, which I think is dumb. You can do 100% inbound, whether that's paid or organic. You can do 100% self-serve, no sales, only marketing engine. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, and so the I, I think that the the takeaway here is what is the most effective cost efficient path to growth. And so if you're selling a low ticket item and you have BDRs, you really need to audit the, the understanding the cost of creating the content because you have people that you're paying five to $7,000 a month to make phone calls and have a 1% connect rate. And so uh, it's been something that I've been talking about a lot. I hope people take, take this away is that, um, marketers should be providing the best path to growth. They, they are not going to, I mean, it's very unrealistic for a marketer to say, we're going to deliver, uh, you know, $10 million on whatever this product is, unless it's realistic. But the key is that given all of the other things that we could do to grow cold calls, um, you know, product led, any of those things, we believe that our demand gen strategy for these reasons is the number one place to grow. Um, so just to get back to the cost, one, one last, uh, one last note, if you go back, it would take you a really long time to scroll because LinkedIn sucks at, at kind of like 
archiving content. If you scroll all the way back to my first video, um, it was terrible. I didn't, didn't have a microphone. You could barely hear me. Um, I was like, I think in, in my living room, um, I was in a, whatever it was, it was not good. Um, it got maybe like 10 likes. I'm not sure, but it was, it was certainly not very many. Um, but the, the, the point is that as you do it, it gets better. Like the cost of me creating that video has not gone up. It's actually gone down and the quality has got way, gone way up. And so over time, you're going to practice and find better ways to do it. The key is just to start doing it, especially, and I love starting with like shoestring budget because it forces you to get really good at it. It forces you to figure out how to distribute it. Um, so I hope there's some cool takeaways in there. Cool. Gatano, you want to, uh, you want to give us a little closing? This has been fun. Thank you all. You tuned in to Demand Gen episode one. Um, if we ever get to a hundred, we're going to have to like literally have when, when all of us can leave, you know, our homes, we'll all have to get together and have episode 100, like somewhere in the U S cause this was cool. Um, I just can't wait to get out of my house. I'm sorry, but yeah, I'll take it away. <laughs> yeah, man. I think, yeah, I, I, you know, it's everybody that, that showed up. Thanks a lot.